The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Miracles in Recovery with Ray Lynch. If you are one of the millions of people facing addiction issues or the loved one of someone who is, we're here to help and to discuss solutions. Hope is in your corner. Now, here's your host, Ray Lynch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Miracles in Recovery. My name is Ray. And I'm Ellen. And we are... Miracles, Miracles in, in recovery. recovery. You know, I just want to take a moment in seeing this is November 7th and the election is tomorrow. I'd like to take a moment and have a moment of silence just to sit and take some of the pressure and stress and all of the divisiveness that we've all been a part of for the past six to nine months and just reflect back and hope that tomorrow or Wednesday we can all start repairing the damage that has been done during this election season. So let's take a moment of silence and then we'll welcome in our featured guest. Thank you. We have on the phone Dr. Sierra McCauley. He is from the great state of Massachusetts, and he is a clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. Hi, doctor. How are you? Hi, Ray. How are you? Fantastic. How's the weather in Massachusetts? Uh, It's it's cold tonight, Ray. It is? But overall, (laughs) not too bad. It's been a nice fall. Nice, nice. Pretty leaves? Pretty leaves, uh, lots of color, and brisk air, so um, we're not complaining yet. So it's, so it's for, you just named all the reasons that I moved to Florida, but <laughs> in keeping with what I said with the, with the opening about the uh, presidential race, I, uh, you just recently wrote a, bro- a blog, the president, the pres- yeah, I can't even spit it out, the prejudices of Americans, how uh, the presidential race has uncovered our dangerous biases. Would you like to elaborate on that or speak a little bit about it and maybe you can share some solutions as to where we go from here or how we start repairing? Sure, sure, Ray. I I think we've witnessed the, the worst presidential campaign probably in most of our histories uh, and I think it also has revealed some of the prejudices of Americans and I think, uh, you know, my focus has been for some years on how we our tremendous emphasis in our society on appearance and wealth to the detriment of, of character and integrity has been really growing over time. I mean, our, our rates of narcissism and uh, are up. Uh, the rates of percentages of people being empathic to others are down. 
you know, trust is down. Americans have fewer friends today than they had 10 and 15 years ago. And also the rates of prejudices, prejudice is up. So in my most recent book, The Stress Solution, you know, I accent the decline of integrity and character in our society and, um, and also emphasis, emphasize how self-absorption and narcissism has increased. And this getting ahead at all costs has replaced an emphasis on service to others. And NPR just another, a week ago um, did a, <coughs> cited another study by the American Psychological Association, not only indicating that stress rates have increased significantly in the last few years, but they've increased significantly in this presidential climate where, you know, we hear people uh, criticizing each other, our political climate with, with candidates' emphasis on aggression, insults, lying, lack of integrity is really mm-hmm. symbolic, I think, of the importance of character and getting, us getting back to maintaining integrity and teaching our children. And character and integrity is far more important than just getting ahead or far more important than what you look like or how your resume reads. Right. Like, what, what are we teaching our children? What are we teaching people of the future with this chaos and stress that we're... we're we are, as soon as we walk out into the community or as soon as we walk back into our family environment, we're carrying stress from this whole thing. Like Ellen and I were speaking before we went on the air, and I, I chose not to say who I was voting for just because people are so divisive. Like if, if I said one person, I would get attacked by one group. If I said another person, I would get attacked by someone else. It's just a scary place to be right now with... With, like you said, emotion, stress, and hate. But it's a reflection of society as a whole, society in general, particularly here, well, I guess in the whole Western world, really. And to me, and you you tell me what you think, Doctor, but I think it kind of started in the late 70s when we went kind of into the dress for success 80s and, you know, everybody was go, go, go and money, money, money and... You know, you got to have the right house, the right car, and not everybody can have that. And is it really that important? But that's what's been stressed. Yes, I mean, I, I wrote a book uh, several years ago called Performance Addiction, and I coined the term because it, it really means that it's people growing up believing that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure them love and respect. And mm. I think we've learned over time that it's a fallacy, and I, I agree with you that that has begun some time ago. Because our our emphasis on character and integrity has declined significantly, and our, our rates of, of prejudice have increased. And you know, when you have prejudice, you have stress. And when you have stress, you release the stress hormone cortisol, and the stress hormone cortisol is extremely destructive. I mean, if you have that ongoing in your system because you're feeling prejudiced or unsafe with certain people. It causes negative thinking, it causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss, breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, it kills neurons in the memory center of the brain, and one of the little known facts is it throws cortisol, the stress hormone cortisol throws off blood sugar levels, which increases the size of fat cells and increases our desire for sugary substances, so it, it increases weight gain. So when oh my gosh, when, I think you're describing me. <laughs> well, I dealt it your prejudice, though. Um, I try very hard not to be, but 
I think we all are in some, some way, some, shape, or form. Yeah, ball, there is you know. some conditioning, and as I'm sure you can tell by my accent, I grew up in the South, um, and there was a tremendous amount of very overt prejudice, and it, and it was yeah. difficult. It was difficult to deal with because I didn't see people this, that way. Well, you know, it, it, I think we none of us grow up in a completely objective environment. I mean, right. so none of us grow up always knowing the truth about ourselves or others. And when we don't know the truth about ourselves or others, we, we're stressed. And when we're stressed, again, we release the stress hormone cortisol. And I try to teach people that, you know, early in life we create a novel, a fictitious story about ourselves that we write based on we, what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us. But if we're looking at, our, as if we're looking at ourselves in a mirror, but if the mirrors you're looking into are cracked or inaccurate, you get a distorted view of yourself as if you're looking in a circus mirror. And as a result, so, you create an inaccurate story about yourself, and that story sets the stage for an irrational belief system about yourself and others. And we can't change that story alone. We're all too subjective. But I think as adults, our responsibility is to rewrite the story. We grow up with a fictional account of who we are and, and about who many other people are, other cultures, other religions, other countries. Our job as adults, our responsibility as adults, is to learn what the truth is about ourselves and about others. And that's why I emphasize in this book combining empathy with understanding the cognitive distortions that we have and the way we perceive and understanding how we can change our brain chemistry for the better on our own by the way we relate. You know, empathy calms the emotional brain so we can perceive accurately and thoughtfully. And being able to perceive accurately is crucial to reducing stress because that old biased thinking, as you mentioned, based on early conditioning, distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. And well, when to we bring this to around keep- kind of to, to the addiction model, cause, because a large part of our audience is people who are interested in you know, addiction and treatment and things like that. Um, somebody said to me one time, which I thought was very interesting, if you have two families and one of them is dancing on a perfect mirror and one of them is dancing on a cracked mirror, which one do you think is going to be a happy family? And that kind of, you know, when you were talking about the circus mirror, that made me think of that. But how, using empathy, how is that? how does that help someone, you know, who, who is in a state of active addiction? Well, empathy is is crucial. I mean, I've worked in the addiction area for many years. We actually started one of the first detox centers in in a hospital locally uh, probably 25 years ago. Which hospital was that, Doc? It was Leonard Morse Hospital at the time, but now it's Metro West Medical Center. Okay. And that was where the Calm Project is, was one Uh one of the locations of the Calm Project, which was a grant from Harvard to treat the spouses of significant others of alcoholics for free. Oh. oh, that's a good thing. Yeah. So why is empathy important to, to people with addictions? One is, in order, to, in order to understand addictions, you have to have empathy. Empathy empathy slows down our process so that we use the thinking part of the brain, not the emotional part of the brain. Many people don't understand the person who's suffering from an addiction because they have their own biases and prejudices about addiction. When you use empathy, you slow down to actually learn the facts about what a person is experiencing. And we know, of course, when people are in early recovery, one of the fears they have is that they're not going to be understood, that people think 
uh, resolving addictions is fairly simple. And of course, those of us who've worked with addictions or know have, have been addicted themselves know that it's a very complicated process that needs empathy because empathy creates understanding. The heart of understanding is empathy. And if you're going to how do we get that? It, how do we get that? How do we get that to the? How do we get that to the family of a sick and suffering addict to be? more empathetic with what is going on in their life versus um, being so tough love, hard nose, throw them out in the street, that type of, you know, the, the, I'm a parent of two addicts and, you know, the advice that I get even from my support groups is, you know, detach, throw them out, don't have anything to do with it, live your own life. And as a parent, that's very difficult to do. But the behaviors that they exhibit can be extremely detrimental to any type of relationship. The behaviors that the family exhibit? Is that what you meant? No, no, the addict. The, the, addict, the stealing, so. the lying, the anger, you know, all of those things. Yes, of course. But it starts with the treaters being empathic to the family. Rather than you telling them the way they should think or should be or should act, it's listening to what they believe and helping them understand the facts of any particular addiction. So empathy toward the family is the beginning place, because if you don't establish empathy, you're not going to have the trust of the family, and they're not going to want to listen to you. If, if we start lecturing or automatically assume that we should tell them to follow tough love or any other particular model that is simplistic and easy and seems like it easily will resolve an addiction, we're leading them down the wrong path. So showing so empathy, now, empathy means that you, when we have empathy, we secrete, when we give and receive empathy, we secrete the hormone, the near magical hormone oxytocin, which makes people feel comfortable and secure, and it makes them feel trust, and it creates a bond which actually reduces the craving for addictive substances, incidentally, and it actually allows people to listen and learn and to, and to put aside some of their biases and prejudices about addiction. Cool. So, is that when the uh, what you what you call the empathic cognitive behavioral therapy comes into play? Like when it, when when a family comes to your recovery environment, you don't immediately start showing them this way, do you? Do you do you treat the symptom and then the um, the isms, or do you like immediately start with the uh, empathic CBT routine? Well, when I when I was running a, in, in associated with a detox unit, of course we we employed empathy and tried to use empathy at all times toward the addict and toward the family or any significant person in their lives. That must be difficult at times, though, because I know um, from my experience. My husband and I, you know, these are our children, although they are, are now adults, and we have always disagreed on how to handle this, I being the more empathic person. I actually, I, I read the stress solution, and I took the test, and I am highly empathetic. Uh, my husband, on the other hand, grew up in an alcoholic home, and he is not. You know, it. the thought of addiction, I think, makes him very angry because of what he had to deal with growing up. Mm-hmm. So our our dynamic is 
is not and has not been particularly healthy, in my opinion. And it, and it, it is very difficult to change someone's thinking. Oh, very much so, especially if they're that, it's that, in, I mean, he was born into that environment yeah. because it was a, an active alcoholic right. environment. So it's tough when you take somebody at 40 years old to go, okay, now you need to, now you need to swing your brain this way. Um, and That's that must be the happen. difficult. That must be the difficult thing. See, with an addict, I, me being a, being a recovering addict, I always had the physical um, proof with my family who weren't active addicts and alcoholics. They don't have physical proof. They just have the mental um, unwellness of the situation that we all lived in. Well, I, I would agree with you that it's hard to change the way someone thinks about addictions, especially if they've suffered at the hands of addicts, especially if you're growing up in an alcoholic or a family where parents are addicted to one or another substances. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, empathy allows us to see people beyond the surface and to move past some of our resentments and some of our anger toward people who may have not been in control. And when you understand addictions, a lot of times... You know, so many people end up, people who were addicts and have recovery for a significant amount of time end up working in the field and understand that, understand the origin of this behavior and see it for what it is, which is a deeply complicated uh, disorder that when, when understood, you can start to forgive. And you, if you hold on to that resentment and bitterness forever, um, you're not really resolving much in yourself uh, and, and not really understanding much about what the whole field of addiction is about. No, that's true. We, we know people who um, still hang on to anger even years after the people, their loved ones have died. Know, My husband's either, mother is dead and he's still or, angry. Or people who have gotten clean within their family and they're leading productive lives. And um, we're coming up on a break right now, so we need to pick this conversation back up on the other side of the commercials. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. It's time to experience radical well-being. Learn to nourish your heart, body, and mind. Manifest your power in the present and learn to live your life's infinite potential. It's time to experience Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio with host Rochelle McLaughlin. Each week, you'll learn about essential skills and knowledge to help you discover and create your own experience of health and well-being and learn to be empowered to take bold and loving action toward manifesting the life you long for. 
Tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Health & Wellness Channel. If you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's Busy, Stressed, and Food-Obsessed show. This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Miracles in Recovery. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to ray at miraclesinrecovery.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Sierra McCauley about quite a few different things, but a lot of the base is about stress and empathy. And he recently wrote a book titled... What is it, Doc? The Stress Solution. Using empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce anxiety and develop resilience. And how can people get it if they want to read it? Well, they go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online, or actually Amazon has a a sale of the book right now. Uh, They can also go to my website, balanceyoursuccess.com, and you'll see the book come up immediately there, and you can just click on it and order it as well. And also, we were speaking about a blog that I just that you uh, just wrote. How can people follow you? Follow your blog. Well, the, there's the Empathy and Goodness Project, which is on Facebook. The Empathy and Goodness Project. Anyone okay. can join that and read my daily blogs, daily quotes. Oh, okay, great. Huh. I did. I yeah. didn't know that. So I'll I'll uh, have to make sure that I that I like that page so they come across my feed. Um, how do people reach out to you going forward? Like if somebody hears something and they need to get clarification on what it is that you're speaking about or they need assistance, mm-hmm. um, how can If they go they to balancersuccess.com, Ray, they can send me an email right there. Okay, awesome. And what I'll do is I'll also put all your information on our Facebook page and all our social media just in case somebody would like to reach out to you they mm-hmm. have access to it that way as well. Yeah, we could even post the blog on your Facebook page if you'd like, if they want access to it that way as well. Oh, that would be awesome. That would that would absolutely be great. We, I would love that. Um, yeah, so we can, we can figure that out, how to do that later. And Ellen was taking a few of the quizzes that you had in your book, and I guess she probably wants a critique on what she took. Well, I'm, I'm just curious, the, the empathy quotient questionnaire, which I did score very high on, how do you use that in your practice, especially in working with addicts and their families? Well, as I said earlier, there's so many misconceptions about addictions. You know, the old idea that alcoholics are lazy and addicts are lazy. And interesting, um, years ago I was on O'Reilly 
and um, it, it was um, after 9-11, and my, my literary agent told me not to go on the show because she knew that he wanted to talk to me about alcoholism, and he said, and he actually made that comment. You can see the video on my website that, aren't they just lazy? Don't they just want to go to work and, and work things <laughs> out and so oh my forth? Gosh. And, uh, and I told her that I, I, didn't know who O'Reilly, I, didn't know, I didn't know who Bill O'Reilly was at the time, so she told me, you're going to get killed if you go on that show. And I said, you know what? I'd rather go on the show and say what I think about alcoholism than, than be afraid of what he might ask me right. or how he might react. And actually, when we interacted, he kind of calmed down somewhat because I think he realized that his belief was really not based on an, in fact. It and, was you know, I think a lot of, of, a, of a, a, lot a conditioned of, idea that he had. That's a lot. You know, a lot of people are like that. And, you know. It, even in 2016, going into 2017, people are still stuck back on the old moral. Yeah, it's the moral stuff. degenerate. Yeah. It's the lazy person. It's you know a bad human being, and that you know it's a brain disease, and it, it is never treated that way. It's, it, it's a brain know. disease, and that's why I try to help people understand that when you use empathy to try to understand the addict or when the addict is actually using empathy toward himself or herself, you secrete this calming neurochemical that allows us to understand each other in a different way. And we as treaters have to model that because when you, you know, you, how many times I've been told that this family won't talk to you or they're so angry at their son or daughter, they're not going to talk. And then, you know, you get them in a room and you treat them with respect and empathy because you're trying to understand why they're so furious and as Ellen said earlier, they often have good reason to be furious. And then we try to, you know, make a relationship, create a bond. And when empathy is, is experienced that way, it changes brain chemistry so people will listen. And when, you're, when you use empathic listening, especially with people that are suffering, families that are suffering with an addicted member, empathy is really probably not very present. And when you slow them down enough, and when they actually can start to hear what you're saying and what others are saying, both sides get a chance to speak, um, you start to see that the understanding is, is creating and, and dismissing the anger. The anger is lessening as people realize that this person is suffering. This person isn't doing it on purpose just because they're lazy or they don't care. Um, right. As Ellen said, it is a brain disease, and when you're addicted, you're addicted. I mean, how many people in recovery say, I can't believe what I did when I was using? And I can't oh, believe I, I, I say that my all mother, the time. my father, on and on and on. And uh, you, you would assume that they are terrible people, but they're not. I mean, some of the best people I've ever met in my life are people who were involved with the AA program. I mean, I've, I've never witnessed such people being of service to each other as I have, and I and I've been associated with the program in this area for many years. And, I mean, people are so giving. They make commitments. They drive people to meetings. Um, they, they help people get jobs. I mean, I know of different meetings of different age groups. I know closed groups for women, closed groups for men. I know, you know, which ones to, I can call up a fellow and I can say, look, can you wait for this person and, and uh, introduce them to some of the people there? And they gladly will do that. I call up some of my female former clients, and I call them up and say, can you meet so-and-so at, at the door? And they will. And, I mean, nobody's getting paid for this. They're doing it because it was done for them. And it's, right. it's, it's a right. program of great commitment and, 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 I think, unusual empathy for people who are suffering. Oh, I agree. But, you know, I think, and, and this happens to me a lot, I think there's a fine line between empathy and enabling. 
and I am frequently accused of enabling my children because I do try not to be mean to them because, you know, some of the things they do are pretty awful. Yeah. Well, empathy teaches us how to, how to respond. It, you know, it's not, it's not enough to have empathy. You have to know how to put it into action, put it into words. And that's why at the end of each chapter in this book, I have a take action section, which I ask people to take some of the learning. This book is more of a workbook. To take some of the learning and share it with someone else and get feedback. Because we have to do that. I mean, we can't balance ourselves alone. And addicts need lots of support. And often they have to get it from other people who've been in recovery for longer periods of time than their family members at first. Because, as you said earlier, Ellen, you know, family members are angry. Family members are disappointed, you know. Um, I know. Well, I think the biggest thing that family members are is afraid. There's, there's a huge amount of fear. What's going to happen next? And, you know, am I going to get that call? Because a lot of people, a lot of parents are getting that call these days. Yes, family members continually say, I'm up at night because I'm wondering if I am going to get that call. Yeah. yeah. You know, and for me, being a recovering addict, I can I can so relate to what you were saying, Doc, about people going out of their way to facilitate love or facilitate caring, um, because I couldn't care for myself. When the you know my last day, fortunately, was uh, February twenty eighth, nineteen eighty nine. You know, there may be one coming, but I, if I keep doing what I'm doing today, I have a better shot at getting past that. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember walking in a meeting. It was a different. It was a different uh, A. It was NA. Um, but I remember walking in and someone welcoming me, and my body immediately like jumped back, like, "What? What are you doing?" And it took a while for me to understand that they were giving to me what was freely given to them, that was allowing yeah. them to keep coming back. And yeah. it took a long, long time for it to sink in. And then I think, ultimately, my mind started following to the obsession is leaving me because it was being replaced with the love of the community of, of Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or yeah. whatever A I was in. They all treat you the same way. Yes. And and people in, and people in AA and NA have learned that by giving, it makes you feel better. You know, people who are giving are four times healthier than people who are takers. True. And I, yeah. I think addicts often, often think that this is about finding out what's wrong with them. And what I, what I call goodness breakthroughs are, you know, when, when your heart's broken, when you've done so many things that you feel ashamed of, you know, goodness is, is lost in the suffering. And, and we're, we're, we're reticent or hesitant to open up again for being hurt again or failing again and what I try to teach people is it's not always finding it's not always accenting what's wrong with you it's when you're clean it's it's uncovering what's been right with you all along that you haven't seen that you you clearly don't recognize in yourself true true well phone lines are open if you would like to speak to the doctor call 866-472-5792 that's 866-472-5792 um, you know, and the sad thing about all of this that we're speaking about is it's all based on that treacherous word, stress. Um, 
my body, you know, I go through things, and it's funny. I was speaking on the phone with somebody uh, a couple of months ago, and this was the same individual that I had worked with at a different company up in Massachusetts, actually. It was a toxicology company up in, um, up in Woburn. And um, it was going through a stressful, we were all going through a stressful situation. And I carried stress on a daily basis. And just recently, up to two months ago, I was speaking to the same gentleman, and it was a different type of stress, but my body doesn't know the difference. My body only knows what to do to my organs and brain while I'm stressing. It can't differentiate, well, this is just a little stress. No, stress is stress. Well, you know, I think people don't, you know, so many people don't realize what stress is doing to them because they get accustomed to living with it. And, of course... Mm -hmm. For addicts, they're, li they're living with stress all the time because of what they're putting in their bodies and what they're doing to their brains. Their nervous systems are frayed. And when they understand and when they have the, the understanding of treaters that are and letting them know that, you know, your nervous system is frayed and it's been that way for a very long time. So we don't know what, what you're going to be like in time when you're clean, when you're healthy, when your nutrition is restored when you start to exercise. I mean, it, it's such an unbelievable process to see people, once they realize how stressed and how, and how much they have sacrificed physically, how much they've hurt their brain and their bodies, and then they start to eat right, and they start to exercise, and they go to meetings, and they start to take care of themselves, and all of a sudden it's like, that's what I call a goodness breakthrough. They're coming out again, and they're realizing right. they're not the worst person in the world. And they begin to know how to change their own brain chemistry on their own naturally, not with any substance. In the book, I, I have a chapter called The Soul's Pharmacy, which is teaching people how you can change your own brain chemistry to produce a feeling of happiness and contentment and serenity. And you can do it without a drug. You can do it on your own. It's not an easy thing to learn, but it can be learned in time if you're focused. Right. And I, I think, um, for me anyway, only because of the, you know, like you say, as an active addict, you, we carried stress on a daily basis. I think sometimes my body, still, even after all these years, can react back to carrying that piece of stress until I process myself away from it. My starting yeah. point is always X. And I, fortunately enough, over the years, I've, I've gotten enough tools in my bag to be able to walk myself away from stress level X. Um, and, you, and, and you're 100% right that, you know, the more you work at it, the better value you will have while doing it. And I'm not saying value in life. I'm just saying the better advantage you will have at, at processing yourself through that stress. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you're pointing out, Rain, that when we have you know, past emotional pain, it can program our brains to jump to conclusions very quickly mm -hmm. when we sense sim similar circumstances to the past. And we have to learn our old records so that we catch ourselves very quickly so we don't go down that path. And that has a lot to do with the way we talk to ourselves. You know, addicts are very critical. They have very, tend to have very critical self-voices. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter on, in this book on the self-voice and how to change the way you talk to yourself by learning the records that you repeat to yourself. Because, you know, our brains don't know the difference between the movies we create and the actual movie. So 
So if every time you say a negative thing to yourself, you're producing a different neurochemical that hurts you. And mm-hmm. we know now that that only lasts 90 seconds. But if you say another negative thing about yourself, there's another 90 seconds of a shot in the arm of a negative neurochemical. So we have to catch ourselves with the old records that we play. And we, have to, we don't have to play all 23 songs. You know, we can pick up the needle <laughs> off the record and, and say, okay, I get it. This is what I always do. I'm going to stop this now. And, right, and we right. need help doing that because, you know, we tend, when, when you have good friends, and obviously this is what a number of the programs do, they help us balance each other. And when people start, start going negative like that and when it's very extreme, they, you know, we need to get some truthful feedback about, you know, you always do this. You're calling yourself stupid or saying I'm not very attractive or I'm just, you know, a dummy or look what I've done with my life and all the people I've hurt. Yeah, you have. You have hurt a lot of people. But what are, we, what are you going to do now? You know, how do you make amends? Right. How, do you, how, do you, how do you work yourself out of it? Because thousands and thousands of people all over the world have done it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they say secure a sponsor and, and stay around people like you for positive reassurance. I mean, like you said, that people, I freely give back as much as I can what was given to me for situations like that because I know when I was in a jackpot, per se, even being clean, um, it was a process to get out of. And I learned a valuable lesson from that. Why can't I be available to share that with someone else that's going through what I've gone through uh, hopefully for the, for the same outcome of, of uh, you know, just another day clean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think there are some situations that just have to be endured. You know, and, and if, you, if you are a family and active addiction is present and the addict is unwilling to do anything, you know, as far as looking at themselves to stop it, you may be in for the long term. And there is a tremendous amount of stress associated with that. Oh, absolutely. And, and like, like um, you know, f- from, from my point of view, being a clean, in recovery addict, seeing the stress levels that you go through dealing with your daily routine with, with active addicts or active alcoholics or whatever they are. One of each. It, yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it's tough to know where you're going through but have a different understanding of where it's coming from because I I come from the addict's point of view not the I was going to say the adult's point of view (laughs) (laughs) we're coming up on a we're coming up yeah it would it would we're coming up on a break so I don't want to start a conversation that we have to cut ourselves off so final phone lines are open dial 866-472-5792 if you would like to speak to Dr. Sierra McCauley, or us, and um, I would just like to thank everyone for listening, and we will be back on the other side of this break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you have been experiencing addiction issues, be it drugs, alcohol, or something else, you know what it means to feel alone in the world. 
The power to create yourself with host Ross Rameen is here to prove that you don't have to feel this way. There are others who have been there or are still there. And together, we can sort out the truths and the lies in order to reveal the true essence of your character. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you understand what really needs to be done for your health? Or like many, are you mostly letting what you hear and see in today's media dictate your healthy lifestyle? It's time to get focused. There is a reason why cancer, heart disease, chronic fatigue, hypothyroidism, and other illnesses are running rampant in our world. Ganino Wellness Radio with Dr. John and Linda Ganino will show you that there are easy, preventative, everyday steps to get you back on track. Listen live every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in to Happy and Healthy Living with Darlene Godwin to better understand the why on how you feel and find the right therapies, treatments, and programs to bring healing to the mind, body, and spirit. You can live a better life at any age. It's not just a temporary fix. Rather, it's a permanent, healthy lifestyle. Happy and Healthy Living with Darlene Godwin is broadcast live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Miracles in Recovery. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Ray at miraclesinrecovery.org. Now, back to this week's show. Hey, welcome back to Miracles in Recovery. We have Dr. Sierra McCauley on the line. And I, in one of the other segments, I referenced empathic CBT. Would you mind elaborating on that and, and sharing with our audience what that is? Um, you know, I've combined the power of empathy, brain science, and cognitive behavioral therapy to provide people with, I, I believe, is a comprehensive self-help tool to lessen stress, balance your nervous system, and balance your life. You know, empathy, as I said earlier, calms the emotional brain so we can perceive accurately and thoughtfully. And being able to perceive accurately, we can reduce some of the old bias thinking that we have about ourselves and the name-calling and the distortions that we have in perceiving other people. Cognitive behavioral therapy is basically learning how we perceive in inaccurate ways, like when we use generalizing or black and white thinking or catastrophizing, mind reading, magnifying, all the ways that we don't see the truth about ourselves or others. So I combine empathy with cognitive behavioral therapy, focusing on the distorted ways that we may perceive ourselves or others, And I also talk about how we can change our brain chemistry naturally by knowing how to relate and by using empathy to calm our brain, and especially for people in early recovery that because their nervous systems are so frayed, instead of using mostly the emotional part of the brain, this process teaches you how to use the cerebral cortex, the thinking part of the brain, so that you can slow things down and learn more about the truth of who you are and who the other people in your life are. So, Doc, can you do me a favor and, and explain the difference between 
empathy and sympathy. Sure, right. Empathy, sympathy rushes in to console without having the facts. Empathy slows down a process to understand the truth and, and absorb the facts. I'll give you a good example. I, I added a fella, six foot seven, early recovery to one of my groups recently. One of the women in the group had, was married to an alcoholic who was very abusive, and she divorced him, been divorced about five years. My client, who's six foot seven, former, uh, well, I should just, I, I'm not giving away anything here because I won't say his name, but former professional athlete, entered the group, six foot seven, very big guy, and immediately she started getting anxious and she started quizzing him and she said, have you ever been violent? And he said, no. She goes, I bet you have. Most of you people deny it. And I said, what do you mean by most of you people deny it? The point was... Um, she immediately thought she knew who he was because her husband was a big guy who was very abusive. Right. One of the women jumped in and said and started sympathizing with her and said, why are you asking her those questions? Can't you see what she's been through? She suffered so much. Now, that was an empathic response. I saw one of the fellows shaking his head in the group, and I said, Roy, why are you shaking your head? And he said, well, we don't even know this guy. He's been here 10 minutes. We've already accused him of being violent. We don't even know his story. And the, the, these two people are talking about how they, they're, they're trying to show sympathy to each other because of all she suffered, but he didn't make her suffer. And then people started asking him questions. Have you ever hit anyone? No. Did you ever hit your children? No. I happen to have known this man for a year. He's never been violent in his life. So my point is that these early perceptions sometimes are sympathetic, meaning that you rush in to console or you rush in because you think somebody is being taken advantage of, like the woman who was trying to help the woman who believed that this man was violent, when in fact empathy slowed the process down to find out the facts. The facts were he's never been violent in his life, but he kind of looked the part, and he's in early recovery, just an alcoholic, just like her ex-husband was. But yeah. the other woman, the third party, was being very sympathetic. She was jumping in and trying to be very kind to her because look what she's been through and look what this man that you're adding to the group. Now you're adding a, a person who's going to be aggressive. I mean, that man has been in the group now for six weeks. He hasn't been aggressive at all. And he's not aggressive. He has no history of aggression. So yeah, sympathy it, it, rushes it, it, in to console. Empathy takes its time to ascertain and get the facts, the truth. It's very truth-oriented. Well, that's a, that's a great explanation, you know, and, and the, the thing is, is that I think, you know, that probably goes back a little bit to, like, we prejudge people when they come in the room, you know, that, that, that minimal prejudice we have when somebody walks into our circle, we automatically assume what our past behaviors are with this yeah. individual well i'm don't sitting here feeling kind of sorry for that guy walking yeah. into you know a new group and immediately being attacked just because of how he looked but you know after an hour and a half ellen of, of discussion and slowing the process down this woman learned something and she apologized to him in the end and she's not that that particular group but over these these few weeks she has apologized to him and she learned something because we slowed down those immediate reactions. And then he got angry. 
you know, and felt kind of like maybe he doesn't belong in this group. And he right, was right. That's what I was thinking. You know, I was thinking but, if I were him, I'd think I'm getting the heck out of here. <laughs> well, it, it all depends on how it's conducted and facilitated. And as more people got involved and people had been through this before, because look, misperception exists on both sides. Okay, the addict comes into a room and they're, and they're very ashamed and oftentimes humiliated and guilty and automatically that, that they deserve this way of being talked to. And then other people make very quick reactions to, oh, you're an addict, you're this, you're that, like you're, you're lazy, right. or like Bill O'Reilly, oh, they're lazy, why, don't you, why right. don't you get them a job and get them something to do? So there's misperceptions on both ends. So what needs to happen? We need to slow down and truly listen from an empathic point of view and try to ascertain the facts. And when I can do that to a group of people, you're teaching them to use the thinking part of the brain, not the emotional part of the brain, and you're helping the recovery process, you're helping their frayed nervous system heal. But how do you get somebody to listen when they really never have? Well, I mean, I, I, I've never met anybody that's never listened. Probably people are poor listeners. One of, the, one of the fellows in this particular group says that his wife always says he's reloading. She says, Tom, when I'm talking, you're, you can't wait. you're chomping at the bit. You can't wait to talk. You're always reloading. And when that happens in a group, I point it out. And I try to point it out sensitively. And I'll ask the person, you know, Ellen, what did Ray say? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? He just spoke for three minutes. What did he say? And then I say, you know, let's try to slow down and hear. Ray, can you repeat what you said? You know, and so we try to slow the process down enough so people learn how to listen. And, you know, when people learn how to listen, they feel much calmer. And when they feel much calmer, they want to continue it. Because rather than having a stress reaction and reacting so quickly and producing the stress hormone cortisol, they're learning to slow down and feel better. When we have an empathic interchange with other people, we start to learn about our distorted ways of thinking. We learn the distorted ways they might be thinking about us. And we start to find the commonality. And we start to find the, the fact that in the end, whether you're an addict or I'm an addict or not, we're all, we all have more, we're all more alike than we are not alike. We're all more similar than dissimilar. We all oh, have the same wants and, and, and we all want to be respected and loved. So how, do we, so how do we use this out in public, out in shopping centers, out in just the general public? I mean, in a... In traffic. In a, in a in traffic. <laughs> in a calm setting, in a focused setting, it's a lot easier to be able to focus on the suggestions that you're giving, but how do I, as an individual living in society, ha- keep an empathetic course living in the world that we live in? Well, the, the two magic words, Ray, are slow down. You know, empathy slows things down so that emotions can be tempered with thoughtful reflection. We need, and we need to avoid snap judgments. Empathy doesn't categorize based on past experiences that sees human beings as always changing and evolving. And we have to learn from the past. We need to understand our past so that our theories and our old patterns don't interfere with understanding and perceiving. If you're unaware of your own biases from the past, your ability to perceive accurately is going to be compromised. Just like that woman who thought that tall, big man was going to be violent, and she realized that that's her bias. Just because a man is tall and alcoholic and her ex-husband was tall and alcoholic doesn't mean they're the same two people. Two alcoholics are not the same people. Two cocaine addicts 
are not the same people. So we have to learn from our past so that we learn the biases that we're projecting onto people so that we don't put old faces on new faces. Right. And, and that's, te- you know, technically that is some type of, you know, prejudging or, or prejudice that we, that we carry. So, you know, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Fortunately enough, because I come from a recovery mindset, you know, so all of the words that you're saying suggest to me that I need to follow the same path that I follow. And I always remind myself, slow down. I always remind myself that I have to because my mind can go off in 27 different directions. And, and, you know, not only do I have ADD, but I mean, my mind can still go and play all kind of games with me. So I have to slow myself down on a daily, hourly, maybe sometimes minutely basis. Mm -hmm. Um, For an individual who doesn't have clarity of thought, like 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 that woman, immediately jumped into, you know, you're my ex-husband because of your body set, your mind, you know, and it's tough to relay that to society, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and the thought of empathetic listening kind of triggered me because I always thought that I was an empathetic listener, but my family tells me constantly that I don't hear them. And I think Part of my problem is I'm always, while they're talking, thinking about the next thing I'm going to say, because that's really more important than what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, so, so we know that if we're, if we're rehearsing what we're going to say in response, we're reloading, and people right. sense right. that, right? And they, they sense that we're not fully there. Well, and sometimes I don't like what they're saying. Actually, often I don't like what they're saying. And, you know, if you don't agree with somebody, a lot of times... It's it causes problems, yeah. yeah. It, it's, yeah. you know, we're never going to be able to meet in the middle. Well, I think that's where, you know, we need to, like Dr. Sierra McCauley said, we need to slow down. Slow down. And, yeah. you know, to take take in what the environment that we're in and, and act instead of react. And I know that there's a lot of situations where I still react today. It's because I'm not slowing down enough to be able to process and be empathetic of the situation that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Well, when we slow down, we limit the stress response, and we're in a position to work through whatever it is, it is that's bothering us in a non-reactive way. And the trusting foundation that empathy creates changes our brain chemistry. It calms our soul, and it puts us in a position to listen. And then mm-hmm. we can open up and take in what we need to hear in order to rewrite our story and correct distorted thinking. And only then we can become what we're destined to be. Right. And this isn't, this isn't only for people in the recovery community. This is, this is worldwide. I think we all, my sister just texted me, we all need to slow down and listen. And that is and just that is so, so true. true. We're, we're such a disposable society today that, we just munch through things and just throw them in our, you know, in our path in the back, in back of us. And we all do need to slow down. I mean, look, at, we, we spoke briefly about the election and how out of control this has spun. And I think if we all sat and listened to each other's reasoning, we may be able to understand where someone's coming from other than just throwing them under the bus because of where they're putting their check. 
we have about a minute left, so what I'd like to do is run through your Facebook pages and your Twitter accounts and all of that stuff where people get in touch with you, Doc, so that they can maybe carry this message or maybe even ask you uh, more questions about empathy and slowing down. Sure, Ray. Thank you. My website is balanceyoursuccess.com. On Facebook is the uh, Empathy and Goodness Project. My Twitter handle is DocAPC, D-O-C-A-P-C. And also on LinkedIn as well, just under my name. Okay, great. Well, it's been a fantastic show, and we're rapidly running out of time, so I would just like to thank you and thank our audience for listening tonight, and have a blessed evening. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us this week for Miracles in Recovery. Be sure to listen again for another edition with your host, Ray Lynch, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel next Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a great week. Hope is in your corner.